G'day mate, 40 here. Let's uh, turn things over to Tucker Carlson to get started. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. If you're an incumbent member of Congress, pretty much the last thing you ever want to do is debate a primary opponent in public. As a sitting member, you already have every possible advantage. Unless you drop dead during a speech or get drunk and take your clothes off on a commercial airplane, you are very likely to be reelected to Congress. So a televised debate cannot help you. It is all risk and no upside. But occasionally there is no avoiding it. Democrats held a primary debate in New York City last night. They had no choice. Both the candidates in this race are incumbents. Thanks to a court decision that redrew congressional boundaries, the two most powerful members of the New York delegation are now running against each other for the same seat. That's a lot of fun. For 30 years, Carolyn Maloney has represented the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Over the same period, 30 years, Jerry Nadler has represented the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Jerry Nadler is 75 years old. Carolyn Maloney is 76 years old. Rather than do the obvious thing and retire... The two are now competing for the newly drawn 12th Congressional District that will combine the Upper East Side and the Upper West Sides of Manhattan. It turns out to be the richest district in American politics. Four of the Democratic Party's five top fundraising zip codes are within this district's boundaries. So there's a lot at stake, and we forced ourselves to watch the debate. We are richly rewarded for doing that. We're going to start tonight with a headline from the debate, which you've already likely seen. Neither one of these people is cheerleading for Joe Biden. He's Carolyn Maloney. Should President Biden run again in 2024? Yes. Mr. Nadler. Too early to say it doesn't serve the purpose of the Democratic Party to to deal with that until after the midterms. Ms. Maloney. I don't believe he's running for re-election. I don't believe he's running for re-election. That's what Carolyn Maloney said. Well, like everything she says, it's not exactly a profound observation. Of course, Joe Biden isn't running for re-election. He can barely find the men's room. The second the midterms are done, he will find a way to tell the rest of us that. So that was not very interesting. It was predictable. What was very interesting and what tells you a lot about the Democratic Party is how these two candidates talked about their personal accomplishments and their goals for the country. Now, we should tell you, having watched it, that figuring out exactly what Maloney and Nadler were trying to say was not easy. These are not spry, articulate people. They're not magicians with the English language. Jerry Nadler is so enervated he had to sit for the entire debate because he is too weak to stand. But at one point, Nadler gathered the strength to boast about his greatest accomplishment in the Congress. That would be impeaching George W. Bush twice. And an insurrectionist Republican Party, uh, for the first time in our history, trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Now, uh, Therefore, I, have, I, I am leading the fight to, uh, to stop this, and, there, and I have passed the uh, uh, two impeachments. And my, in leading this, I've impeached uh, Bush twice. Bush twice. The secret to Jerry Nadler has never been his appearance, often remarked upon. It's been his intellect, which is small. Obviously, Nadler meant to say Donald Trump, not that he can remember what decade it is. But what he meant to say is not really a consolation for Democrats watching at home. The problem here is that Jerry Nadler and Carol Maloney, these are two of the most powerful Democrats in the United States Congress, running in the most influential district in the United States of America. Neither of these candidates have anything to say. 
So Jerry Nadler is asked, what are you proud of? And he's talking about multiple impeachments. Whatever you think of impeachments, did they improve a single life in this country? No. So she was asked the same question, Carol Maloney. What are you proud of? What are your priorities? And so she responded. Here are Carolyn Maloney's priorities for the United States. Our work is not over yet. Uh, we need to protect women. We need to pass gun safety laws. We need to combat climate change. So those are her top priorities. This is one of those powerful sitting members of Congress. First party, protecting women. In other words, more abortions, protecting women from having children so they can continue to work at some depressing midtown bank. Don't raise your family. Go to work. What Carol Maloney does not mean by protecting women, of course, is punishing criminals. They're free to beat women on the subway in New York with no consequences, and they routinely do. But that's number one, protecting women, more abortions. Okay. Number two, gun safety laws. Now, none of these gun safety laws, meaning gun confiscation laws, will be enforced in places where the Democrats get a huge percentage of the vote, like Chicago or Baltimore, New York or Gary, Indiana. They get a pass, but disarm the other side. And then number three, combating climate change. Because you don't need air conditioning in the summertime. You don't need a car. Look at Sri Lanka. They've done a great job. What's interesting is what Carol Maloney didn't mention as a top priority, and that would be the economy, inflation. And it's interesting because every poll taken shows that inflation is the number one issue that actual Americans care about. So why wouldn't Carol Maloney, who's a politician after all, can probably read a poll, why would she not include inflation? Well, it's possible she's not aware it's happening. And we know this from the president of the San Francisco Fed. That would be Mary Daly. She explained her views on inflation inadvertently. Apparently, she was unaware she was being recorded. And because she didn't know anyone was listening, Daly explained that inflation doesn't matter to her because she's rich. And we're quoting. I don't find myself in a space, that's how they talk in San Francisco, in a space where I have to make trade-offs because I have enough. And many Americans have enough. Ooh, you've got enough. You've got enough. Stop your whining. Time to fix the climate. We're in charge of the weather now. So these are the issues that the leaders of the Democratic Party and the party's donors, many of them in San Francisco and New York, care about. They don't care about inflation because they're rich and it doesn't affect them. In other words, they don't care about you at all. And by the way, this isn't just true of longstanding establishment figures in the Democratic Party like Jerry Nadler and Carol Maloney. It's everywhere. It's endemic. It's in the fabric of the party itself. Even people who want to join the club repeat the same lines. At the debate last night, Maloney and Nadler at 76 and 75 were joined by a 38-year-old lawyer called Siraj Patel. Now, Patel runs a multi-million dollar hotel management company. He was the guy on stage who's supposed to be a breath of fresh air, the face of a new generation. So what did he talk about? Issues that people care about? <laughs> no. He referred back 15 years to describe his so-called ideas, because it turns out he's an Obama Democrat. My name is Serge Patel, and I am a lawyer, a professor, and an Obama Democrat, from whom I learned that Democrats lead best when we lead with new ideas, energy, and a new generation of leadership. Yeah, that guy's got new ideas and energy, just like Barack Obama. That's why he's supporting Joe Biden running for re-election again. It's pathetic. It's not just him. It's not just Maloney. It's not just poor Jerry Nadler. It's the entire Democratic Party. 
The Democratic Party has run out of gas. The Democratic Party at this point is a cartel that exists only to perpetuate itself and the elderly mediocrities who run and benefit from it. All of them. Carmela Harris is only 57 years old. She's a child by the standards of her party. But she still talks like a dementia patient, slowly and incomprehensibly. Here's Carmela struggling to explain what mail-in ballots are. Now, you'd think she would understand mail-in ballots, given that mail-in ballots are why she has a job. But she doesn't. Watch. They said when they voted, I think sometimes with voting, is you're just putting in your order. This is what you want. So when people stood in those lines for hours, when they sat at their kitchen table for hours figuring out how they were going to fill out their ballot to vote by mail, when they drove by those drop boxes with their kids in the back seat, patiently waiting to, to drop off that ballot, they were putting in an order. We don't mean to beat up on Carmela Harris, who's obviously our favorite for the Democratic nomination next cycle. But she is a perfect distillation of everybody in power in the Democratic Party. Every word that emerges from Carmela Harris's mouth is a recycled talking point that's been run through a banality machine to remove the slightest hint of anything interesting or challenging or relevant or meaningful. So no wonder Democrats are unpopular. They have nothing to offer. They haven't updated their files. They believe it's 2005. You see this in foreign policy, particularly. They are living in their heads in a world in which the U.S. wields the world's most powerful military, backed by the world's strongest economy, and can do whatever it wants just by telling other people to obey. So like Joe Biden, you just tell Russia, don't invade Ukraine. And of course it won't. We're America. You just let China know that we back Taiwan and the entire 75-year-old dispute over that island will be settled forever. They really believe that. They have no idea of this country's relative place in the world order because they don't know anything about reality as it stands right now. So here's Nancy Pelosi who imagines that she's so powerful that she can somehow bring about an indefinite peace in the Taiwan Strait just by saying so. Watch. Today, our delegation, of which I'm very proud, came to Taiwan to make unequivocally clear we will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan, and we are proud of our enduring friendship. It doesn't mean anything. It's the barking of dogs. It's less relevant than dogs barking. And trust us, the Chinese know that. But from Nancy Pelosi's perspective, I said it, therefore it's going to happen. Problem solved. That's the world they believe we still live in. They imagine the United States is still so rich and fat powerful that we can afford any sort of pointless frivolity. We can tamper with the formula and suffer no ill effects. We can hire trans admirals and intersexual CIA officers and everything's going to be fine. That's how powerful we are. We can force Delta Airlines and United to apply affirmative action standards to airline pilots and somehow our planes will never crash because... Nothing bad ever happens in the world. These people have completely lost touch with reality. How out of touch are they? Well, the Democratic Party's main radical right now is Sandy Cortez of Westchester. How radical is Sandy Cortez? Well, she spends her days defending the intel agencies and neocon foreign policy and the big banks. So if your revolutionaries are reading scripts written by the World Economic Forum, maybe they're not actually very revolutionary. Maybe they're defending the status quo. And that's exactly what they're doing. And they're doing it because they have 
no other plan. The sad truth is the people who run the Democratic Party have just given up. They've given up on the country and given up on the people who live here. They've got no solutions for you. They're not even pretending that they do. Climate! Trans! They don't imagine a future. That's what they're telling you. Smoke more weed. Take more pills. Might as well cut off your junk and pretend to be a girl. Sterilize your kids. Abort your babies. There's no future worth having. That's not a caricature. They're saying that out loud. They're done. Now, the Republican Party, by contrast, is suddenly showing signs of life, of thinking and responding to reality. They're faint signs. Trust me, the people who run it have no interest in changing the Republican Party. They've gotten rich from it. They're pretty happy with their sinecures. Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell are enraged by the changes. They're content with 2003. They'd like to invade Iraq again, actually. Mitch McConnell's got pretty rich from China. Doesn't want that to change. But they're not actually in control of the party. The Republican Party is changing. And we know that for certain because last night's election results in a couple of primaries show not just new faces, but new ideas. Blake Masters won the Republican primary for Senate in the state of Arizona. Candidates like Peter Meyer, for example, of Michigan, the guy who voted to allow men to play in women's sports because he's sensitive, lost. In the Republican primary for Arizona's gubernatorial race, Carrie Lake has just taken the lead. She's not like your parents' Republican Party. And in the state of Michigan, Tudor Dixon is now the Republican nominee. She will take on Gretchen Whitmer in the fall. We were interested in meeting her, so she joins us tonight. Tudor Dixon, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on your win. I think you're one of those candidates who won because you had ideas people liked. Okay, I'm not interested in uh, listening to a politician. What I am interested in is... Okay, listening to, do we want to listen to Jordan Peterson? He says, the, the world is doing much better than we're told. So, come on, let me... That depends on. on you. Western society in particular. What's that? Western society. Yes, yes, yes no, and, and, and more globally. I mean, I worked on the UN Secretary General's report on sustainable development for about two years and read a very large number of texts on environmental... Uh, problems and opportunities and economic development and text. What happened to me was that I got way more optimistic than I was before I started reading those books. I mean, so many things have happened in the last 40 years that are so good, you just can't believe it. I mean, we've lifted more people out of abject poverty in the last 15 years than in the entire course of human history, in terms of sheer numbers of people. You know, and starvation, except for political reasons, is now pretty much absent across the world. There hasn't been any wars in the Western Hemisphere for about a decade. That's really something, you know, and no major wars plague us at the moment. That's, that's quite something, given that there are 7 billion of us, and there's only going to be 9 billion, by all appearances. It's going to peak out at about 9 billion, and my suspicions are, in 100 years, one of the biggest problems we'll face is that there's just not enough people. And you never hear that, but I really do believe it's likely to be the case. And we can certainly carry 9 billion people without doing the planet undue environmental damage. And people who claim otherwise, I think, well, I think a lot of things about that. But one of the things I don't think is that that's an accurate viewpoint. I mean, we're doing far better than we were 40 years ago, feeding people, and we can certainly pack in another two billion. It turns out that if you want to control population, though I wouldn't really recommend that as an occupation, um, all you have to do is educate women, and that's the end of that problem. Then you also have educated women, and we know that's very annoying, but it seems to be... 
seems to be, you know, it seems to be working out. It's a great predictor of general economic development. It's actually, I think, the best predictor of a society's future economic development is the attitude that they hold towards the education of women. And luckily, it's in the positive direction, and so that's very cool. And then it certainly seems to be the case that the fastest way out of a given environmental conundrum is to make absolutely poor people richer as fast as you possibly can. Because then they do things like, well, they don't burn wood anymore. Maybe they burn coal, and I know coal is evil, but it's not as evil as wood. And I don't know if you know this, but 1.6 million children die every year because of the indoor pollution that wood burning causes. It's like if, if the nuclear industry had a record like that, that would be all over the newspapers, but they're just third world children after all. So, you know, the planet has too many people on it anyways. And so... There's all sorts of things I see that are so radically positive that it beggars description. I mean, India and China alone have greened an area in, because of agricultural transformation the size of the Amazon and partly as a consequence of increased carbon dioxide levels, an semi-arid area, it's either the size of the Amazon or Alaska, I don't remember which, has greened in the last 15 years. And so these are things you never hear. You have to ferret them out. But as far as I can tell, if we got our act together and actually wanted it instead of wanting to burn everything to the ground in an orgy of guilt-ridden self-destruction, we could set up a world in 15 years where absolutely everyone had plenty to eat and where obesity would be the primary problem. It's a good problem, actually. It's like, oh, no, you know, we have too much food. What are we going to do? That's a good problem. And where everyone was educated because the cost of education is falling precipitously. And, and we could do that in a way that was actually beneficial to the environment, whatever that is. So... So I would say, fundamentally, I'm optimistic. But if we want hell, we can certainly have that. And you might say, well, you don't want hell. It's like, yeah, really, eh? You might want to ask your question, yourself that question real seriously, because... Okay, and, and I often play uh, Jordan Peterson, but he's right. In most things, the world is getting better, right? Now, we're certainly going to hit some bumps. Being born, the Americans proposed that we would use our Navy, the only one to survive the war, to patrol the global ocean so that anyone could gauge in any trade with anyone at any time. This is normally the sort of benefit that you would have only had if you were on the winning side of the war and you were an imperial power already. So we basically made the world open for everyone. And that allowed everyone to take manufacturing and services jobs and diversify and specialize and access anything from a world over. And once that became an option, people started taking those jobs. But all of those jobs are in the cities. And that changed who we are. Because in the pre-industrial, pre-globalized world, most of us were farmers and small plot farmers at that. But once we could move into the cities and take those more value-added jobs, it changed how the way we thought of families. On the, fam on the farm, kids are free labor. You have a bunch. In the city, kids are really expensive habits. You have very few. You fast forward 75 years, and it's not that we're running out of children. That happened 40 years ago in most of the world. We're now running out of adults. And so we're in a ever-accelerating population crash. So even if the Americans were willing to continue a 20th century strategic policy in a world where there's no longer a Cold War, we no longer have the population structure for consumption that allows globalization to work either. So whether it's the front end or the back end, this, this period in history is now over. And it's just a question of how we segue into whatever's next. So I've always been told, Peter, that we've got too many people. The world is overpopulated, that we need to have less people. Yet here you are telling me that actually we don't have enough young people. The population busts in the advanced world started in the 1950s and 60s. And that spread to the advanced developing world in the 1980s to the 2000s with Japan, I'm sorry, with, um, with China most aggressively in the 1990s. So it's just that it takes a long time for, for you to realize that a population, I'm sorry, a birth rate bus is leading to a population bus. That takes 30 to 50 years. Well, it's now been that in spades. So in the entire advanced world, populations are aging at the same time they are shrinking. And one other thing, when you industrialize for the first time, you don't just get roads and rail and electricity. You also get antibiotics and medical care. 
So mortality rate collapses. So China's probably the best example. They industrialized starting in the late 1980s. Their mortality rate collapsed. Their birth rate did not increase. It dropped as well. But because everyone was living longer, the population continued getting bigger. Well, you play that forward 40, 50 years. And now you've got so many people who are so old, they can no longer even have kids. So this, this population rubric belief looks at the core numbers, just sheer numbers. And by that number for the last 40 years, yeah, the population's been getting bigger and bigger and more unsustainable. But if you look under the hood and look at the younger generation, it has been steadily vanishing now for long enough that we have run out of people of reproductive age to generate the next generation in much of the world, China included. And so assuming nothing else goes wrong, assuming globalization holds, we're still looking at a population crash. So we'll probably hit, what, 8 billion next year? We'll never hit nine, and it's gonna be an accelerating fall off from this point. And that is going to contribute to deglobalization, as you've said. What else is going to happen with this population crash? Oof, uh, pick a topic. We can go anywhere with that one. Uh, let's start with the really unsexy one, finance. If, if you're 55, 55, 60, 64, something like that, your kids have moved home, your house has been paid down, your incomes are high, your expenses are low, you are the richest you will ever be. And then you move into retirement and you liquidate all of your investments and you go into very rote investments, things like treasury bills and cash. Because if there's ever another currency or market crash, you're out of luck, you're destitute. Well, that is now happening to the baby boomers this year. At the end of this year, that happens in most of the world. And our richest generation ever that is providing all the financial ballast that has allowed everything to happen is going to basically take their marbles and go home. And in most of the world, there is not a generation coming up behind them. The, uh, the gen next generation in the United States is very small, but it's even smaller relative to the boomers in the advanced developing world. I'm sorry, in the advanced world. So we know that the cost of capital is going to bear minimum quadruple in the United States. It will probably increase by a factor of six to eight in most of the rest of the world, and it won't get better. Now, in the United States, 10 years from now, our millennial generation, which is a large generation, will enter that capital-rich demographic. But most of the rest of the world does not have a millennial generation of size. So we're going to get this split in capital costs with the Americans going one way, the advanced world going another way, and most of the developing world never having been able to become rich enough to play their own role. So we could do all of this in a period of multi-decade capital shortages. We don't even have an economic theory that describes what that is going to look like. Uh, exciting stuff, Peter. Uh, but, you know, you, you talk about um, the situation with demographics and you mentioned winners and losers. Who are going to be the winners of this uh, situation? Well, the United States is the first world country in the best position demographically. And in terms of structurally, economically, it never invested its economy into globalization because it was a bribe. We basically created this environment so that people would be on our side versus the Soviets. So if we had invested our economy in it, we would have just been another empire and there probably wouldn't have been all that many takers. Uh, so that means the United States can step away from the system and not suffer too much pain. France had a very similar view of globalization because they saw it as an American strategic play. They're like, oh, that's what we would have done. So, of course, they didn't invest their economy into either the globalized world or even into the European Union. They think of the EU as a strategic project, not an economic one. And so this is they invested into the European system about the same way that the Brits did. Small, late, have some regrets, never went in whole hog. But then there are countries that can attach themselves to one of those systems or maybe start up a little echo of their own. Turkey looks pretty good. Uh, Japan clearly has the military force to go out and secure the things that it needs. And it has offloaded a lot of manufacturing base into countries with better demographic structures. Argentina, despite its creative policymaking, has all the inputs that it needs to be successful, should it so choose. Uh, and then other countries have already managed to kind of get into the American inner circle, whether that's Mexico or Canada or Colombia or Chile. They already have the legal structure and the trade deals in place. Uh, Australia looks good because even though they're going to suffer a horrific recession as they adapt to some of the excesses of the last 30 years. They've got a stable population, they've got resources, they've got the raw materials, they've got um, an agricultural system that's hugely export-oriented, and they're America's best friends. So you can see countries latching on to some of the more successful systems and others trying to go their own way with various degrees of success. Well, Peter, we're sitting here in Britain, which I, I take it would be on the list of winners by being sort of under the umbrella of the U.S., is that? That is entirely up to you. Um, one of the problems that Britain has right now is it still fig hasn't figured out what the hell it wants to do about Brexit. I mean, come on, guys, it's been five years. Um, Tell me about it. <laughs> the smart play would be to go to Washington and ask for a deep free trade deal and maybe inclusion in the NAFTA. The problem with that strategy is that we will treat you, we have treated you exactly the same in these talks as we treated you during Lend-Lease. 
So we gave you in Lend-Lease 40-odd outdated, badly constructed mothball destroyers in exchange for every military facility you had in the Western Hemisphere. That's the scale of the capitulation that Washington is going to demand. That means all your deals with Ireland or Northern Ireland have to stick because we like those. That means you have to surrender to American agricultural norms, which means most of your farms will go out of business. Uh, and that means that the financial hub needs to move from uh, London to New York. I mean, these are non-negotiable from the American point of view. And that's one of the reasons why the trade deal has not happened. The, uh, the rhetoric of the Brexiters that they would just be able to go to Washington and get a better deal, not true. But what the Americans are demanding is the best you are going to get. And until and unless the UK comes to that conclusion on itself, uh, then it is trapped at the edge of the European system. Now, the European system is facing its own mortal problems, but you can no longer be part of whatever the planning is for the next stage. And that does leave you kind of out on your own. And long-range manufacturing supply chains are no longer viable anyway. So you do need to partner with someone. And that either means going crawling back to the EU, which I don't think is a viable option anymore, or crawling to Washington, which is at best distasteful. Right. Well, we're going to be crawling, is your point. We're sort of on our knees already, to be fair. Uh, but Peter, one of the things that uh, a lot of what you, you're clearly someone with a lot of expertise, a lot of the people who watch our show uh, are not as educated on these issues, but what they're trying to do is understand what's happening in the world and what's happening in their lives right now. And we talk a lot about the cost of living. We talk a lot about the rising price of fuel, all of these things. How have government policies played into this? Because a lot of people will say, well, look, the pursuit of net zero is one of the reasons that all our prices are going up. Someone else will say it's the war in Ukraine and people come up with all of these different explanations. What, what do you make of all of that? Well, let's start with kind of the conventional wisdom because it's not all wrong. Um, I'm usually the guy who pokes that, but not this time. Uh, net zero with today's technology until we have figured out a low-cost mass-stored electricity system. And that means storing electricity not for four hours, but for four months so you can make it through the winter. Until we have that technology, net zero is really dumb from an environmental point of view. Forget from an economic point of view. It's suicidal from an economic point of view. But from an environmental point of view, there isn't enough lithium on the planet to make that work. Now, in the UK, you do have advantages over almost everyone else in your hemisphere because the UK has some of the best wind resources of the world. And if you put a wind, tower, wind turbine high enough, you can tap stronger currents that are more reliable that can actually generate baseload. We're seeing that in the North Sea. In the United States, we're seeing that in Texas, and we're seeing that in Iowa. It's not foolproof, but wow, is it better than what we had five or ten years ago. So I don't mean to suggest you can't green your system. I'm just saying that getting to zero today is not possible. And if you try and if you do it by decommissioning more reliable energy producing systems, which almost by default means nuclear or fossil fuel, you are going to have high prices and rolling brown blackouts. We are seeing that across Central Europe right now. The technology just isn't there. So it's real. That doesn't mean you should give up. But Peter, just to interrupt, right? Yeah. If that's the case, then why is everybody insisting that we do it? Because it's a great catchphrase. I mean, people have bought the ideology, unfortunately, without looking under the hood. We're just not there yet. And Europe... Yeah, that's... That's some good analysis there. Like green energy, it is a great uh, catchphrase, but does it actually work? Is it is it practical to meet uh, our primary energy needs right now? No, but uh, sure, it feels good. So, so much going on. Looking at the Wall Street Journal, uh, monkeypox patients report excruciating pain and lack of guidance as U.S. cases mount. We've got a health emergency in Los Angeles and other cities in the United States due to monkeypox. And so monkeypox patients are reporting a lack of guidance as U.S. cases mount. So that's why I'm here, your moral leader, going to give you some guidance with regard to monkeypox. Uh, don't participate in gay orgies. Don't participate in, you know, sex with random strangers, right? Don't go to gay bathhouses and start hooking up with blokes, right? If you hold yourself back from the gay orgies, you're not going to get monkeypox in all likelihood. So monkeypox patients are crying out, according to the Wall Street Journal, for guidance. I just gave you the guidance.
Scariest story here from the Washington Post. Conservatives are skeptical of coronavirus vaccines. They battle to lead a hospital. Guys, the battle for control of one of Florida's largest public health systems has turned political. You didn't realize that uh, medicine was previously, it wasn't political at all. Public health was never political at all. So even though public health authorities told us for months that we shouldn't go to church or synagogue, we shouldn't gather with family and friends, but it's cool if you gather with people to do Black Lives Matter activism and nobody's going to say boo about gays participating in gay orgies. But if you're not part of a protected group, we were told for months by public health officials, right, don't gather with other people. And I broadly support public health responses to COVID and political responses, but I recognize they are political. And the re responses were tailored for different groups. So regular people were told not to socialize. But if you're a Black Lives Matter activist, or you want to go have a gay orgy, then yeah, go out and do it. So yeah, of course it's political. Okay, we've got uh, Duvid. Duvid, what's what's going on in uh, Michigan right now? Uh, God forbid. Uh, I mean, I guess uh, Tucker Carlson was interviewing the Democratic... Uh, winner of the primary but uh i lost my power god forbid I stepped okay. outside there were severe windstorms but you were sitting around listening to your show nothing to do reading a book and and how often does this happen losing your power god forbid it happened last summer quite a bit there was you really increased wind i'm not sure if you could see my yard i i, I cut down the tree in my front yard and the backyard it cost a fortune like near ten thousand dollars having these trees cut down and uh, supposedly the detroit edison company cut down a whole bunch of trees and it wasn't supposed to happen as often um but it still happened god forbid i, I see a house around my corner that a tree literally fell on top of it i'm not sure how good my phone reception is you could see uh, a tree literally fell on the corner of a house right across the street from me. Um, it's 50 mile an hour winds. But last year, one of the power outages cost me three days without power. It looks like I should get it on later tonight. And, and uh, how how often, how, like how many how many days would you guess you were without power last year? Last year was quite a few. It was like four days. I'm not sure if it was you know, global warming increased uh, wind speed or, uh, you know, there's quite a few heavy storms. Usually it's maybe once or twice a year and it's on, on within a few hours. And it looks like this time is going to be, um, God forbid, this is my neighbor's house. I don't know if you could see that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so hopefully it's going to be a few hours. And uh, so it's not, it's not you know, usually that bad. Last year was exceptionally bad, and people are blaming it on global warming that's increased uh, wind speeds and storms, and in general incompetence because uh, uh, Michigan has a lot of trees and has overground power, power, uh, and the trees go right into the power cords, and generally the power company doesn't cut the trees until it interferes with the power and 
you know, so last year after the four days without power, they claimed they're investing like a hundred million dollars into preemptively cutting trees. And, you know, homeowners like me spent a lot of money cutting down trees that were in danger of falling. Um, but it still happened, God forbid. And how efficient and effective is is the government in your area? Um, not super efficient, but, uh, you know, the agencies or institutions are semi-efficient. So Detroit Edison basically has a monopoly of power. There's consumer energy, uh, but, you know, the power company has a monopoly and it uh, operates independently from the government. So uh, Detroit Edison's, you know, not great, but it's relatively quite efficient. So it's uh, independent of the government. I assume in California also the power company is independent of the government. Yeah, I, I believe so. But uh, if there's a a crime and uh, someone calls 911, what is police response like? In my neighborhood, very good, like less than a minute. Um, wow. You know, God forbid, in my neighborhood, mostly African-American, is we snitch. You know, if you see someone on the street you don't recognize, preemptively call the police. You know, just like if you see someone walk around that uh, you don't know and, uh, you know, not much loitering. Um, but I mean, the power company just passes the cost on to the consumer. So it's, it more goes into the, you know, the direct cost that's got nothing to do with government or efficiency. So even all the money that they spent to preemptively cut down trees or whatever, that's going to be passed right back to, uh, you know, me or homeowners. And, uh, is Gretchen Whitmer likely to win re-election? She's an extremely strong favorite. You know, this new woman, Dixon, is a Republican, is, uh, doesn't have a super strong political background. So, uh, her chances are quite minimal. People might be pretty unhappy with the Democrats, inflation, you know, infrastructure, the roads, various things in Michigan. But Gretchen Whitmer pivoted to become a nationally recognized figure. She was, I don't know if her association with Biden during the election, she was like one of the top three Democrats on the, the Biden transition team. Um, but she became a national profile. She's got, uh, tens of millions of dollars in uh, funding access to be on uh, national news channels, name recognition, as opposed to this woman, Dixon. Most people, it's their first time hearing about her. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's quite a nice neighborhood, uh, David. Yeah, I'm upper middle class. These homes go for about $200,000 you know, like 1,500, 2,000 square foot, mostly African-American. Uh, when I was very young, it was mostly white and, and uh, Jewish. Even a majority of the Jews have moved out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, thank God, relatively to the you know country, a house like this might cost a million dollars in L.A., but, uh, you know, Metro Detroit, now, would you be happier living in a white neighborhood or a Jewish neighborhood, or are you perfectly happy living in a black neighborhood? I'm perfectly happy in the black neighborhood. Um, you know, I said crime's pretty low here. People largely stick to themselves. If I had kids 
education would be a bigger uh, issue. Like there's not great schools, private schools. You know, like even the Jewish community, there's another uh, tree that was just down. Um, you know, like I'm not sure, you know, I probably have to send my kids to the Jewish private schools and I probably prefer like I am kind of, uh, you know, within the greater boundary of the Jewish community, but a little bit outside of, uh, you know, so Jews are the minority in my neighborhood. So uh, there wouldn't be, uh, you know, so many eyes to make sure that I do a, everything fully according to uh, the Jewish community. There's areas in Oak Park, Michigan, that like streets that are 100% Jewish, um, just a few of them. And actually housing prices are, could go up as high as $500,000 for very similar to where I'm living now to be on an exclusively Jewish street. And do you go walk around your neighborhood very much? Because it seems perfectly pleasant. No, almost never. Like, I, I would largely doing it because uh, the power's out. Although I might start, you know, like, I'm feeling the age. I'm getting up there middle age, so I might start doing things like jogging or exercise. I'm worried uh, about my long-term health in old age, so I should probably uh, start get dedicating more time to, like, exercise, jogging, or something like that. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a nice neighborhood. I mean it's a perfectly pleasant place to go for a walk, go for, go for a jog. And and how far away are the dangerous parts of Detroit? Um, well, eight mile. I'm on eleven mile, so eight miles, three miles south. The mile road system, uh, you know, eleven miles from me to uh, to the Detroit River, and uh, it's not necessarily really bad just over the eight mile um but there would be you know some increase in eight mile even get closer on the southern side of uh, southfield about like nine mile um you know generally as you go further north the lots are larger the houses are more valuable there's a better funded uh police but uh even Southfield, like uh, towards the eight mile border is uh, relatively safe, but occasionally you'll find like car chases or, uh, you know, even local like 7-Elevens um, within a few miles of me being robbed. And how far away would you have to walk to get to an overwhelmingly white neighborhood? Um, just two miles. You're like... Uh, you know, south of Eight Mile, I, I went to a chess program just south of Eight Mile. I went in, uh, you know, just to help out a local chess program. And the school, it was a magnet school. That means through testing, they had, uh, you know, some of the better students in Detroit uh, had zero whites and the high 90% African Americans. So maybe there was like one or two Arabs or Indians, but it was basically 100% African American. Um, but, uh, my neighborhood's like 80% African-American. If you got to like 13 mile, it would be already 90% white, but th there might be different minorities like Indians or Arabs interspersed. I mean, there's blacks everywhere all the way up to like 25 mile. You're going to find a few percent, uh, blacks, but already two miles North is, uh, you know, like 90% white.
And what what's the difference in real estate for the same same size lot, same size home between your black neighborhood and the ninety percent white neighborhood? Double the price, like half a million dollars. And even in some of the areas, the lot sizes are smaller. So even going a few miles north, where it's majority white, it might be half a million dollars for like thirty percent less less uh, house in uh, lot size. Okay. And so what did you think about this book that uh, I wanted to discuss? It's, let me find, the author is an Israeli philosopher attorney named Ronnie Goldman. And the book, it's a work in progress. So there's the occasional typo, but it's called Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. Do you have any thoughts on this book, David? Yeah, because I'm from my cell phone. I don't have the book in front of me, but I, you know, like I read it. Uh, you know, I, I shared some uh, quotes, and then I went over it a second time. Uh, you know, literally just as the power was going out, it was pretty interesting. The thesis was interesting from my perspective. I, I think he, I don't know, fails, but uh, to to look at. Uh, I mean, he defines conservatives, and he, you know, he gives a whole bunch of definition. But is the difference between an individual strategy and uh, a group strategy? You know, what does it mean to be conservative as part of a larger group of conservatives that's discriminated against versus an individual like me if I have conservative leanings? And uh, he he only minimally addresses the ethnic question so he's probably largely assuming that uh conservatives set of values that anyone subscribes to others talk about uh whiteness um he kind of sounds like frame games a little bit and you know critical race theory and just demographics are changing and the nature of conservatism as a majority movement to conservatism as a minority movement and the strategies of uh, liberals so that as a minority, um, you know, conservatives have basically had to uh, take on the strategy. And I also think he kind of, I mean, fails might be too strong of a word. And, and uh, you know, if your buddies with a guy he wants to talk about it, that's, that's fine also. But uh, to uh, differentiate between, clearly between culture and politics in the sense of conservative as a political strategy versus uh, conservatism as a political leanings, if that makes uh, sense to you or if you agree kind of with my uh, two critiques of failing to clearly differentiate between group and individual strategy and differentiate between political strategy and uh, cultural strategy. I'd have to think about that. But uh, what do you think about his description of, of hero systems, that it's absolutely a, a biological necessity that we all operate with hero systems, whether we're on the left or the right? You know, a hero system depicts, you know, that which is heroic, that which is good. Uh, people can't live without a notion of right and wrong, and they can't live without feeling that they have some special place in the cosmos. Yeah, I mean, so... I, mean, I guess is one of the chapters like you know liberalism is now conservatism and conservatism is now liberalism and you know it's not just that everyone needs heroes 
but the difference in the hero structures of uh, you know what it used to mean to be a conservative hero towards now what it means to be a conservative hero and how generally conservative heroes operate in the open as where liberal heroes operate in uh, you know, somewhat amb- ambiguity or within uh, you know like the shadow confines of uh, your certain systems. Yeah, so he he makes the point that uh, conservative hero systems are out in the open. All right, so uh, if you're a Christian or if you're an Orthodox Jew, your, your hero system is is very much in full public view. But the hero systems of the left, he writes, operate surreptitiously within insulated institutional enclaves, and they have a specialized discourse that provides them with a pragmatic veneer. So people on the left, liberals. They often say, "Well, we're just pragmatic. We're just uh, we just pursue what is objective truth. We have let go of the need for superstition. We have let go of the need for, you know, all these traditional storytelling devices. We we don't need that. We're we're scientific." And he makes the point that nobody can live w- without a hero system. It's just that the the left wing hero systems. Are, are disguised, but they still have a hero system. They still have a story that they operate along. So it, it's like people who say they don't believe in God, but they still empirically, the way they live their life, they very much believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's curious because he, he has a little section where he talks about social justice, but in his section, like may, maybe I'd have to you know, relook at it, to, you know, to you know, say if I'm giving accurate critique, but you think, well, what about the social justice warrior? Isn't the liberal hero the social justice warrior? And maybe if you're thinking like mask Antifa people or anonymous snitches that, uh, you know, uh, hit the report button on YouTube or uh, condemn racism, uh, or, or is there an open phenomenon of the open uh, social justice warrior? I'm not sure if he, uh, you know, discussed that. Yeah, that's a good point, and I don't recall him discussing that. But how would you describe your own hero system? I mean, you have a combination of allegiance to Orthodox Judaism along with a deep abiding affection for Hinduism, and you you love chess, you're interested in science, consciousness, psychology, philosophy. How would you describe your hero system? Probably field-specific. Because I had libertarian leanings politically, that like in the public sphere, you basically all politicians or, or you know even business leaders are generally not heroes or self-seeking. So you know you have heroes that are field-specific, and then you could have a, a hero that demonstrate uh, demonstrates expertise or prowess within a field, uh, but doesn't have uh, you know the character the personality or charitable nature to uh, go with it so you know can you, you could be a hero in the business world maybe like you know Donald Trump or something like that that doesn't have the character to go to go around with it but then you know when I became an orthodox Jew the hero system flipped where the only true heroes are like the sages and the gadolim you know and even the businessmen or upstanding people of the community like the you know the mockers the uh people who do a lot of good deeds, you know, the only real heroes are the gadolim, the rabbis, uh, to, you know, the second nature hero of kind of like the the good Orthodox Jew 
who uh, you know works, earns an honest living, and does charity, and then you'd know, be a hero for largely through self-sacrifice uh, through the, the community. So, like if Luke Ford was a hero in the Orthodox community, it would be because uh, you know demonstrated by self-sacrifice to the community. Um, and like obviously, if you were a wealthy businessman, uh, the you know your ability to uh, do a lot for the community uh you know would be uh magnified but in you know that sense that uh you know you could be a hero because there's a cause and there's a group that you could uh benefit and it could be measured by how much you've benefited the group uh, but as i mentioned like you know the the very orthodox the only heroes are the gadolim and the rabbis okay so let me just uh reflect out loud about where i i believe that i i touch the heroic and then maybe you can talk about your own life and however low-key the heroism but let's just talk about what what we regard as heroic in, in the things we do so for example i try to pick up trash and so it's a very mild very low-key very muted form of heroism but i pick up trash I, I try to make the, the world consistently on a near daily basis a cleaner place than, than it would be if I didn't intervene. Also, I volunteer between about 5 and 15 hours a week. And so for about 5 to 15 hours a week, I help out other people. I try not to enable them. I just help out in, in ways that, that seem to be healthy, seem to make the world a little bit better, help, help uh, some individuals make their lives a little bit better volunteer in the community, make the community a, a better place to be. So I, I regard that as very, again, a very low, low level form of heroism. I'm not out there, you know, sacrificing my life. I'm not doing anything terribly dramatic, just talking low level, low levels of volunteering. And then I, I read books and I try to bring attention to ideas and books that I think are important. So I sometimes have moments and segments of shows that I think are important that help people. I try to create an online community that people aren't going to hate themselves for participating in afterwards so that if if the shows I do have any effect on people, I, I'd like to think that for at least a few people that they they have a positive effect. It can be a combination of laughter, a, a new point of view on something, or just gathering together with, with friends in the in chat room to uh, build build each other up in in a difficult time. So instead of people just going home and watching TV, I think often you know joining a live stream like this is a healthier choice. So those are fairly low key forms of heroism. But I, I pay my way through life. I, I don't depend on on charity, and I I pay my way when I go to Jewish institutions. I give sadaka. So those are the very mild forms of heroism that I strive to participate in on a near daily basis. So with regard to your own life, where do you feel that you're touching the heroic, even if it's in a low-key way? I wouldn't use the word heroic for that because I think, you know, heroic is has to go beyond that. You know, like I, a rabbi in Metro Detroit used to say, small things make big people. And so like that just makes you a mensch or an Eric Yid an upstanding Jew, um, not necessarily a hero. You might be a hero to specific people, maybe like, you know, through streaming or 12 steps or personal charity. They say you're a hero to specific people that you really helped more than anybody else. So if they looked at it, you're just like, no, uh, 
you know, of all the people who helped me, you know, Luke or Duvid helped me more than almost anybody. Uh, but uh, no, I, I would reserve the word heroism for something great, you know, uh, above and beyond. And, you know, bringing it back to the book in terms of conservatives or liberalism, you have to bring in major wins for the group. So I've done Jewish communal affairs, maybe being a, you know, competitive chess player, you know, like where you at least locally getting minor wins. So say, okay, there's, there's a guy and he's winning and he's, uh, you know, he's wearing a yarmulke. He's, uh, you know, he's doing something and, uh, and he's winning and, uh, and he's a Jew. That's a win for the greater community. Or if you're doing like Schlichus uh, community activism in a place where no one else is doing it. So like, you know, like, you know, Joe Luke Ford's our guy in Hollywood, even though we got, uh, you, know, you know, thousands of guys in Hollywood. Uh, but, you know, so to say you're our guy where we don't have anybody else uh, might be heroism. And, you know, bringing back to the politics, like, no, I think heroism has to go beyond where you're, you know, like I was mentioning the group versus the individual strategy where uh, you're bringing in uh, your wins on a major level for the community. And obviously within Judaism, money is very powerful. You could donate money. You could uh, employ people. Uh, but. Uh, okay. Let me just. Let me... Everything yeah, happens within a, a context. So we were talking about hero systems. So I said nothing about me being a hero. We're talking about hero systems. And I said on a very low, muted, subtle, understated level of heroism, if we're talking about hero systems, we have to talk in that language to keep 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 on, on the, the same track as what we were talking about earlier. So I, I was trying to... Prod you to, to talk about what what you can't live without a hero system and you can't live without seeing yourself essentially as the hero in your own story. So what are the things that you do that uh, fill you with, with the most pride? Um, well, I mean, kind of like you said, just being a mensch, you know, opportunities to do communal service, um, you know, if it's in term like helping out at, uh, you know, synagogues or uh, public events, uh, you know, giving food away, uh, donating charity, helping out people that no one else is helping. You know, like you said, uh, picking up trash, small things, making big people. Uh, and, and you say like, like the hero of just being a mensch, you know, the hero system maybe for conservatism or liberalism that I tow the party line in that sense. Uh, you know, it's like I'm, a hero, a hero, you know, part of the hero system because I tow the party line, whatever that party line means. If it, you know, in Judaism means like, well, you know, Luke, he's a mensch, you know, like, like, uh, you know, he picks up trash uh, when someone needs help, you know, he's always willing to help them out. He's a real mensch. He tows the party line in terms of the, you know, general hero system. And how important is it to you to feel like you have a special role to play in the cosmos? Well, that's why I put more heroes. So that's, you know, kind of like desire. So, you know, there's the base level. If you want to put like a Maslow hierarchy of needs where, you know, there's reaching the mensch level of being self-sustaining, of being uh, a useful member of society, you know, even, to, you know, if you were, you know, adult male had, had children in the system, but, you know, just being self-sustaining, having a permanosa fulfilling useful functions that you, maybe there's other people that could fulfill them, but, uh, 
you know, that generally in uh, in the group there's something useful that they constantly call on me um, to do. And then, you know, like I said, the Maslow's hierarchy, that, that uh, the dream that I would, uh, you know, reach some higher level where I would do something that's useful or recognized by uh, greater humanity, even if I, you know, haven't achieved that yet. Okay, let me read another excerpt from this book that you pointed out. So the liberal elite have simply privatized their conservatism in various professional and cultural milieus where they can indulge the same or two human impulses that the conservative ordinary American must display more openly. So because the liberals exercise far more control over their cultural environments, the liberal elites are privileged to insulate themselves from whatever might threaten their own identities and thereby provoke their intolerance. That is why they can see themselves as more tolerant, more open than conservatives, whose identities are more exposed to social disconfirmation. What do you think about this idea? I largely agree, Vincent, somewhat with that thesis to put it to uh, you being uh, being oppressed or but it's difficult without well-defining groups. So if you're talking about you know the acceptance of multiculturalism or the acceptance of changing society, because generally liberals are on the forefront of the changes and conservatives are pushing back against it. So you know, liberals kind of have this, uh, um, you know, I guess under the radar, uh, I'm a member, of, I'm part of the change. And the conservatives that are trying to prevent the change, we've got to, you know, report them or, uh, or, uh, you know, at least, uh, you know, character assassination or, or whatever, uh, you know, as we're, but as I said, like, I think his book was a little weak in, uh, the clear definition of the group dynamic of it, like, you know, who, how do we define these groups? What does it mean to be part of this conservative group or, uh, or, or the liberal group? Okay, David, I think I'm going to move on for today. Any final words for today? Yeah, well, th- thanks for doing so about the the power outage. It was an interesting book. I spent a few hours, uh, you know, looking at it today. So if you want to, you'll go through the whole thing. And, and hopefully when I have the, my computer working, I have it in front of me to, uh, uh, you know, actually, uh, you'll give some direct quotes or, or look these things up. But uh, you're blessed and thanks for having me on again. Yeah, you bet. Uh, take care, David. Okay, article in the Washington Post here. Conservatives skeptical of coronavirus vaccines battle to lead a hospital. The battle for control of one of Florida's largest public health systems has turned political as though it wasn't political already, right? It was already political that certain groups were discouraged from social, uh, from gathering socially with others, such as going to church and synagogue, all right? Ordinary Americans were discouraged from that. But if people wanted to get together to protest for Black Lives Matter, then that was wonderful and good, and that was encouraged. And if gays want to go to an orgy in the time of monkeypox, public health officials, by and large, and politicians are extremely reluctant to try to say no to them. So you can't escape the political. Conservatives skeptical of coronavirus vaccines battle to lead a hospital. The battle for control of one of Florida's largest public health systems has turned political. News by Tim Craig. Sarasota, Florida, when his blood oxygen dropped to what he described as a critically low level in September, Victor Rowe knew he had a bad case of COVID. 
but like growing numbers of conservatives here in southwest Florida, Roe didn't trust the doctors at Sarasota Memorial Hospital to treat him, even though it's part of one of the state's largest and highest-ranked medical systems. Roe, a longtime Republican activist and self-described strict constitutionalist, instead rented his own oxygen unit and hooked it up at home. For the next several days, Roe battled his coronavirus infection in his living room, relying on medical advice from friends and family members. If I went to the hospital, I believed I would die, said Roe, pointing to online videos and conspiracy theories he watched raising questions about the care some coronavirus patients received at the hospital. Now a year later, Roe is part of a slate of four conservative candidates trying to take over control of the board that oversees Sarasota's flagship public hospital, highlighting how once-obscure offices are emerging as a new front in the political and societal battles that have intensified across the country since the start of the pandemic in 2020. Although the contenders are considered underdogs to win on August 23, health policy experts say the campaign is a troubling sign of how ideological divisions are spilling into the world of medical care as fights over abortion, the coronavirus and vaccine. Right, so without these these nasty conservative activists, all right, uh, fights over highly charged moral issues and political issues, they wouldn't have touched the healthcare system. It's these nasty conservatives who are bringing their nasty politics into this pristine scientific world of healthcare. Well, healthcare has an element of science, but by and large, medicine is not science. For decades, doctors were removing tonsils, even though the evidence was very clear that this was unnecessary. All right, there are all sorts of medical procedures that are uh, that are not evidence-based. For example, removing women's uh, ovaries, right? Doing uvorectomies and hysterectomies. By and large, right? People live longer if they don't have these procedures. When people have these procedures, their lifespan is reduced, and they have they often tend to have all sorts of complications. But doctors get to make a lot of money by doing a lot of procedures for which the evidence is simply not there. So it's not like the world of medicine was there ever this pristine, scientific, objective place. Scenes increasingly fall across party lines, alarming doctors, hospital administrators, and medical experts. All you need to do is look at how school boards have now become very political and how boards of education have ignored the science of education, said Michelle Assel. The science of education. Guys, School boards are getting taken over by conservatives, and they're now ignoring the science of education. What exactly is the science of education? I, I mean, when, when teachers get master's degrees in education, do they become better teachers? Now, I by and large think American public schools are excellent. When you break down testing results by race, Right, Asians, whites, uh, blacks, Latinos pretty much do the best in the world for their race in the United States public school system. So I think overall public schools are pretty good. But this notion that there is this pristine science of education that those you know nasty conservatives are despoiling, right? That's ridiculous. Public health professor emeritus at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. There's this new disregard for the professional training that medical people have and a disregard for the science of what is best for the... Well, disregard meaning don't automatically bow down to it. Don't automatically assume it's right. People have very different relationships with doctors than they used to, right? The relationship between doctor and patient is no longer someone up top telling someone below them what to do anymore. It's become a cooperative relationship for decades now, right? The old authoritarian 
structure where the patient would go in and the doctor would tell him the score and tell him what he was going to do. That that hasn't been the dominant paradigm for doctor-patient relationships for, for many decades. So th this notion that the doctors possess you know, unvarnished objective scientific truth and you should never question them, that's absurd. And that hasn't been the, the general dynamic of, of what we have been told is ideal for, for doctor-patient relationships. It's the ideal is increasingly moved towards a cooperative relationship rather than a top-down relationship. Now, I'm sure doctors have expertise that regular people don't, but that doesn't mean they're always right. And that doesn't mean that they don't benefit from being challenged. Everyone benefits from accurate criticism. And sometimes outsiders see things that professionals don't see. Population. The Sarasota candidates, at least three of whom are skeptical of coronavirus vaccine mandates, are rallying behind the theme of medical freedom. A lot of people are skeptical of coronavirus vaccine mandates, right? I think coronavirus vaccines are very good. I think everyone should get vaccinated for the coronavirus, but whether coronavirus vaccines should be mandated, that's a much more complicated question. And I've, I've gone back and forth on that, though I've generally come down against uh, mandates. So I do think there are times and occasions when vaccine mandates are necessary, such as for, for polio and all sorts of other diseases. But when it comes to coronavirus vaccine mandates, yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of mandating them. The term is increasingly being utilized by the conservative movement nationwide and hits a belief that patients aren't given enough control over their medical care. Propos well, that's been the trend in medical care for decades. This isn't new. Right? Th this idea that patients deserve more input into their medical care, right? this has been an increasing paradigm for 40 years now. Opponents point to vaccine mandates and difficulty accessing improving coronavirus treatments like ivermectin that were touted by politicians, but rejected by physicians. All four of us. Which politicians? Which physicians? Right, physicians are a monolithic group. Plenty of uh, physicians backed uh, ivermectin. And uh, plenty of politicians you know, were, were against it. Politicians and physicians are not monolithic groups. Are devoted Christians, conservatives and patriots who deserve to make the Sarasota Memorial Hospital system stronger, more accountable with greater transparency. One of the candidates, Joseph S. Chirillo, a retired physician, wrote in a social media post. Several Florida-based... So if uh, Christians participate in the Sarasota Memorial Hospital in Sarasota, Florida, it's just going to go order hell? Right. I would expect that they would bring some new perspectives and some new blessings and some new problems. It's not at all clear they're going to make the healthcare worse at Sarasota Memorial Hospital. On the other hand, it's not at all clear that they're going to improve things either. Conservative or far-right organization are supporting Roe and his running mates in their bid to join the nine-member Sarasota Hospital Board. Tamar Farah, senior... Why shouldn't Christians join hospital boards? Is there something about being a Christian or, or being a conservative that should bar one from participating in public life? Director of Mom Force, the education-focused branch of Moms for America, a group pushing for conservative women to become more engaged in the political process, said campaigns for low-profile positions demonstrate those on the right have woken up. Right. Well, well good. I think it's important that people on the right wake up because right now, all our institutions are dominated by the left. 
So the Wall Street Journal's got an important op-ed here. Medical education goes woke. Future doctors will be obliged to learn how health relates to systems of oppression. Medical Great. education goes woke. Future doctors will be obliged to learn how health relates to systems of oppression. By the editorial board. July 26, 2022, 7.05 p.m. Eastern Time. The woke domination of American higher education can seem tragically comic when it's confined to the English department, but when it infiltrates the hard sciences, far more is at stake. Read and wince at how woke politics is about to infect medical education. The Association of American Medical Colleges, AAMC, is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., that represents and advises medical schools. When I go see a doctor in California, they usually ask me if I have a gun in the home. Right? I, I really don't think that's right. It also has influence with the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, the national accreditor that sets med school standards. So when the OMSI tells schools to revise how they teach, America's future physicians will be obliged to listen. I'm thinking every time I interact with institutions, I just get bombarded with left-wing critiques. All right? It, it's like... It's like being an infidel in an overwhelmingly Christian society. That's how I feel. The OMSI recently released a report describing the new diversity, equity, and inclusion competencies that medical students and residents will be expected to master. Practicing physicians who work at teaching hospitals may also soon be required to undergo this form of, well, political re-education. As a starting point, aspiring doctors will have to become fluent in woke concepts such as intersectionality, which the OMC defines as overlapping systems of oppression and discrimination that communities face based on race, gender, ethnicity, ability, etc. Med students who manage to avoid learning critical race theory in college will now get an immersive course. They will also be expected to demonstrate knowledge of the intersectionality of the Right, so why should doctors be, be forced to learn critical race theory and intersectionality theory? That, that's absurd. Aren't there better things for them to study? Patients' multiple identities not to be confused with personality disorders and how each identity may result in varied and multiple forms of oppression or privilege related to clinical decisions and practice. This sounds as if every medical diagnosis will have to be made with an accompanying political and sociological analysis. We don't need that. All right. There are much better uses for doctors' minds and time and training than making political and social analysis. There's nothing inherent in being a rabbi or a doctor or a biologist or an accountant that gives you a keen understanding of politics and the sociological. Aspiring doctors will have to learn that race is a social construct that is a cause of health and healthcare inequities, not a risk factor for yeah, race is a social construct. It's also a biological construct, right? Race simply means an extended family. Who are your relatives? Who are your ancestors? Disease. Yet racial or ethnic groups do sometimes have a greater propensity for certain health problems. For instance, black women are at higher risk for a type of breast cancer known as triple negative, and women of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage are at greater risk of the BRCA gene mutation. Relationship. So Dr. Sally Sattel wrote in the New York Times, I am a racially profiling doctor. If you're a doctor and you don't racially profile, knowing that different races have different susceptibilities to different diseases, you are not doing your job. All right?
the way the world works is that we take into account people's race and frequently their religion and their social standing and their profession right it's between race and disease aren't always well understood but knowing they exist can improve minority patient outcomes it doesn't help patients with immediate needs for a doctor to assume that their condition is really about the systems of power privileges and oppression in society med students will also be expected to articulate how their own identities power and privileges for example professional hierarchy culture class gender influence interactions with patients as well as the impact of various systems of oppression on health and healthcare for example colonization white supremacy acculturation assimilation most okay so no wonder that uh, some conservatives are fighting back and uh, kind of tired of the left dominating all our institutions, including healthcare. So that's what's happening in Sarasota, Florida. Issues involving medical care also increasingly galvanize conservatives to the polls, Farah said, amid their growing distrust of the healthcare establishment. No one should ever feel threatened by one group of doctors' thoughts versus another group of doctors, Farah said. Everyone should have their debates. Everyone should have all the information available. And people should be able to decide for themselves. Controversial noise. In Sarasota, the county hospital has long been a source of pride, while also serving as a magnet drawing both retirees and doctors and nurses to the region. Oh, it's a source of pride, but if conservatives stick their icky fingers into the mix and, and dare to run for the hospital board, then it will no longer be a source of pride. U.S. News & World Report recently named Sarasota Memorial Hospital as the sixth-best hospital in Florida and the top hospital in the broader Sarasota-Bradenton region. Moderate and left-leaning residents now worry that the hospital's prized reputation could be shattered if the current board is ousted in favor of more conservative candidates who have... And, uh, yeah, what about uh, conservatives who are concerned that uh, woke ideology, left-wing ideology will result in them getting inferior care. Remember when the vaccines came out and there was this tremendous push by various medical institutions to give the vaccines, first of all, to people who are not white, right? So the left has tremendous power in our medical institutions. And let's just say that the vaccines have a good chance of saving your life. So if you're white, you have to go to the back of the line, in some medical institutions. I mean, even the CDC was pushing this, that the vaccine should go to non-whites first, right? So why do, do white lives frequently come last when it comes to many of our medical institutions? Largely still not explained how they would wield their new powers. I am not sure what they are looking to prove because we have a phenomenal hospital system, said Terry Hansen, president and CEO of the Charles and Marjorie Berensick Foundation. What are they trying to prove? Well, maybe they're trying to prove that they're tired of the left running everything, right? Maybe they want to say in their own healthcare, right? Maybe they think that the relationship between patient and doctor should be more collegial rather than top-down and hierarchical. They never ask the obvious questions, the questions that matter during political debates. So in last night's congressional debate in New York, no one mentioned that New York City smells like a sewer. No one seemed to can figure out why. So we sent our own Jimmy Fallon out to the streets of New York to investigate the odor problem. 
Jimmy Fallon here in Times Square, New York City, only place in the world where you can hear a skunk complaining about the smell. To oversimplify it, folks, if New York were a women's shampoo, Joe Biden wouldn't sniff it. But this summer's particularly bad, with New Yorkers logging a record level of odor complaints to the city's 311 system. We're going to take to the streets to find out where the city that never sleeps smells like the city that never showers. Let's go. Why does New York smell so bad? I mean, look around. There's, there's CBD trucks everywhere, you know? There's You're blaming the weed. Yeah. The Big Apple cologne, if you will. I think the garbage has been piling up on the streets and people are urinating in the streets. A little bit of that. the uh, marijuana smell and everything else. I don't like the way you looked right at me when you said urinating in the streets and smoking too much weed. Well, my man here is from East Africa. Tanzania. Marijuana here in New York, it smells so bad. It's and everywhere, right? But you just wish New York smelled as good as East Africa. Um, oh, Zanzibar Island is so good. A lot of people smell. You blame the cigarettes? Yeah. And the smoke, yeah. and it's just tobacco in those cigarettes, right? Yeah. All right, you know, good man. A cop stopped me a minute ago. He's like, you smoking marijuana? I was like, no. He's like, well, here you go. Why does New York smell so bad? People. You just think there's too so many people? So many people, yeah. You think we're just not, like, policing not, soap use enough? Yeah, not enough showers. I mean, you're in Florida. It's a red state. It's run by Ron DeSantis. Does any part of Florida smell like this? No, not really. Not too much. People. Yeah, shocking news. New York doesn't smell so good. All right, here's uh, Peter Zion. He's now giving us an excellent example of 40 years of policy of what exactly not to do. So because it sounds good and it's a great catchphrase and politicians get to look all virtuous and moral, we embark on this policy which is fundamentally unworkable. Hey, hey, you guys are the ones who basically said you wanted a cheese submarine in the shape of Brexit and you went along with it. So this is not an isolated incident, okay? People have ideas. People have bad ideas. And politicians of all flavors strap onto them. We've certainly seen that in my country in the last five years. Uh, you are not unique in that. So whether that makes you feel better or worse, I do not know. But I certainly <laughs> agree that net zero in its current form with today's technology is economically and ecologically suicidal. And uh, I think a lot of people would have voted for Brexit even if they knew it was going to reduce the gross national product. There are often politically more important things than increasing the gross national product. Come on, Tucker. Media that there has been a spate of violent crime against Asian Americans. A lot of things you hear in the media are lies. That's actually not a lie. That's real. That's happening. And if you haven't seen the videos, they're everywhere. The question is, who's doing this and why? Well, we're not exactly sure why, but the federal government keeps really good stats on this. So we know that a lot of these crimes are being committed by African Americans. They're more African men are more than 80 times more likely to commit crimes against Asians than Asians are to commit crimes against African Americans. So why is that? What explains that? Instead of asking that question, which seems like kind of an important question, the media are telling you, and our leaders are telling you, that this is just happening. It's probably Trump supporters. And that's it. But it's happening a lot. This apparently racially motivated attack happened on Sunday in San Francisco. Already on the ground, Mrs. Wren is kicked squarely in the face. They used the fist to hit my head multiple times. And then they pull me down to the ground and keep hitting me, kicking me. The horror doesn't end there. When Mrs. Wren tries to hide in the hallway and is unable to close the door, the suspects return again, not to steal her watch or earrings, but her keys, and to take turns assaulting the terrified senior. Beating up an old lady for no reason. Maybe there is reason. What's the reason? It's certainly happening a lot. In New York City, 
A career criminal called Anthony Evans just slashed a 59-year-old Asian woman with a box cutter as she was walking in Manhattan. You're seeing that footage right now on your screen. Evans has a criminal history that includes robbery and criminal possession of a weapon. But New York's leaders, who claim to care about stopping Asian hate, have decided not to charge Evans with a hate crime. It's just another random attack. Kenny Zhu is the president of Color Us United. He's the author of An Inconvenient Minority, and he joins us tonight. Kenny, thanks so much for coming on. So th th these videos are everywhere. I guess you're not supposed to notice or something, but what is this? What is going on? This is Asian Americans' political renaissance being fitfully born. And what I mean by that is this, Tucker. Asian Americans right now are in the middle of a political crisis because they are being taught a narrative about our country that does not comport with their experience. They're yes. being taught that America is a racist country against them and that it's white Trump supporters that are targeting them. But their experience in San Francisco and Brooklyn is showing it's not the whites that are targeting them and it's not Trump supporters that are targeting them. Instead, as I show in my book, An Inconvenient Minority, they're being targeted by progressives. Progressives are the ones who are trying to discriminate against Asian Americans in college admissions, and now they're trying to hide Asian American hate crimes because it does not comport with their one-sided racial narrative. That's what's going on in this country, Tucker. So, I mean, there are so many videos like this. You kind of have to wonder, why is nobody making more noise about this? And I think people are starting to make more noise, Tucker. Um, and Asian Americans have actually started to make more noise in San Francisco's DA election. Remember that progressive Chesa Boudin, the yeah. one who said he was going to defund and abolish the police? Well, guess what? San Francisco, a 25 percent Asian American community, voted him out. You know why? Because they know that when police are defunded, it's people like them who typically Asian Americans do not commit crimes. In fact, they're four times more likely to be the victim of a crime than to be the perpetrator of one. They're the ones who are voting people like Chesa Boudin out. Yeah. You just got to wonder where the hate kicking an old lady in the face. I just I, I didn't want to see that. It's so, so awful. Uh, really, truly. Kenny, thank you for coming on tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you. Much. Thanks. So a year ago today, we were in Hungary and we had a chance to speak to the prime minister of that country, Viktor Orban, and we were deeply impressed by that conversation. Orban explained that as Hungary's leader, he has embraced strong families, national sovereignty, the principles upon which all thriving countries are based. Saying that out loud has made him the most hated leader in the world, far more than, say, Xi of China, who runs a fascist ethnostate. On CNN on Sunday, plagiarist Fareed Zakaria once again tried to smear Hungary and Viktor Orban in the laziest possible terms. He argued that Viktor Orban's Hungary is on its way to becoming Nazi Germany. This coming week at the influential CPAC conference in Dallas, alongside Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, and more than 20 Republican members of Congress, conservatives are welcoming a foreign leader, Hungary's Viktor Orban. I wonder if Orban will give a version of his latest major speech. In a spa town in Romania last weekend, he warned that Europe was in danger of becoming a mixed-race world, a trend he said Hungary had always resisted. There is a gruesome history surrounding rhetoric like Orban's in his own country. It is what led in the 1930s 
to the passage of some of the harshest laws against Jews, the reviled minority at the time, mostly copied from the Nuremberg Laws in Germany. It's almost unbelievable that they aired something like that. So Viktor Orban is now a Nazi because he wants national borders. So Orban's office wrote a lengthy letter to CNN about this coverage. Quote, your latest video, reads the letter, is yet another example of the Western liberal media's deliberate efforts to spread misinformation about Hungary. Yeah, to put it mildly. Balazs Orban is Prime Minister Viktor Orban's political director. He joins us now to respond. Balazs, thanks so much for coming on. Boy, they, it's so interesting out of all the, I mean, there are literally cannibals in charge of some countries on this globe. You have a country of 10 million people in Central Europe. It's a small country. They spend so much time hating you. What do you think that's about? And it's interesting to talk about, oh, my God, you know, Hungary is imitating the Nuremberg laws. Well, do you know what the Nuremberg laws were imitating? They were imitating laws in America and Australia. Okay, so it's not nearly as dramatic to say, oh, Hungary is imitating older Jim Crow laws in America and uh, white Australia laws in Australia. No, it's, it's the Nuremberg laws. We, we got to tie it to the Nazis. So, hello, Tucker. It's uh, so good to see you. Uh, actually, since 2015, when from one day to another, 400,000 people tried to cross our borders illegally, and we made the decision to establish the fence uh, and try to protect our borders and maintain or at least regain law and order, we are under constant heavy pressure from the globalist um, elites. They think that if somebody is speaking against mass migration, that he or she should be racist or anti-Semite or, or... Now, let's also keep it real. If uh, Viktor Orban wants to explicitly frame his policy in terms of fighting back against race mixing, all right, a lot of people are going to feel kind of queasy about that. So Viktor Orban stepped into it. Uh, Viktor Orban you know, phrased things in ways that would accelerate opposition. So Viktor Orban is responsible for the latest outrages against Hungary. Right? This just didn't happen out of the blue. It happened because of inartful and, and crude and ineffective ways of trying to promote what he was doing. Right? You can say similar things, but you can say them in a way that's just going to alienate people who are undecided, or you can say things in a way that uh, people who aren't fully on board with you might be open to it. And Mickey Kaus made this great critique of right-wing publications such as American Greatness and National Review Online. They just take it for granted that they're speaking to true believers, so they don't even work at speaking to people who don't automatically share their politics. And that makes you lazy. The Senate, Mitch McConnell, said Sweden and Finland should join NATO because somehow this will make America stronger. There's also no question that their entry is specifically in our interest. Even closer cooperation with these partners will help us counter Russia and China. Their accession will make NATO stronger and America more secure. Oh, yeah, it'll make America more secure. So if Sweden or Finland were to wind up in a war, we are bound by treaty to enter that war. How does that make America stronger? Well, apparently they didn't even think about that in the Senate because the Senate just voted 95 to 1 to expand NATO to include Finland and Sweden. 
Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri was the only person to vote against it, and we wanted to ask him why. Senator, thanks so much for coming on. You're the not not going to listen to politicians, even Josh Hawley. It is the Kenneth fact is Brown. that we have been in a recessionary environment since 2020. The fact is that in 2020, Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, made the choice to double the money supply. Now, you could say it was actually the Federal Reserve who did that, and Trump doesn't have any power. That's fine. But if you're going to hold Trump to this very low bar and say that he's not responsible for anything economically that happens because he's not in control, he doesn't have real power, he can't even control a chauffeur going to the Capitol, if that's the case, then you can't blame Biden for any of this. And if you're blaming Biden for this, then again, you're just playing political football. Because who's to say that all the same things wouldn't happen? Like, as far as the inflationary environment, it started under Trump. It's continued under Biden. What's the argument that somehow this is the liberals or the Democrats are doing this? No, it seems like Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, they're doing the exact same thing. So I don't see the difference. I see this as a complete lie, right? So then we've got um, open borders, open borders to drain, erode family income resources stability. So here's the problem with the term open borders. I would love open borders. I would love it if I could drive across the border to Canada or Mexico without a passport. I think that would be a great idea. Um, now, of course, coming with that has to be the fact that we're going to have um, expectations that come with responsibilities that come with that. So with regard to Canada, I have no problem with having a border with Canada or open border with Canada because it's not like there's a wave of crime that's going to pour in from Canada into the United States. Um, with regard to Mexico, you can make the argument that it would be pretty dramatic. It would be a wave of crime that would come in. But like consubstantial with that would have to be an expectation, responsibility, and cooperation that the United States government is going to work hand in hand with Mexico to bring that under control. And what that would look like maybe brutally would just be the United States military has to go in, the National Guard has to go in, police forces have to go in, that the United States government has to go into Mexico and to make sure that um, if you are driving on a public highway, you are not going to have a... Yes, yeah, so Ken Brown wants to invade the world and invite the world. He wants the United States to send its, its armed forces into Mexico to try to make things better there. Yeah, I think I prefer borders. So I appreciate that Ken Brown wants to puncture many you know, right-wing tropes, all right? He, he forces you to think a bit. He's, he's one of those uh, live streamers who talks about politics, and you're not going to hate yourself after watching Ken Brown, all right? He's going to give you a, a contrary take, and good for you, Ken Brown, for, for doing this work. Let's get a little more from Peter Zion. Uh, but that's only one piece. So okay. we've got the Ukraine war then. Uh, the Russians have recently shut off Nord Stream, and we know that all the pipelines that are crossing Ukraine to Europe are going to get blown up one way or another this calendar year. So you can count on roughly five or four to six million barrels a day of crude and roughly, uh, oh, geez, i got to translate this one. Sorry, I'm thinking BCF. It's 9 to 12 BCF. So what's that, 90 to 120 million billion cubic meters of um, natural gas a year going offline before the end of the year. And that will obviously sucker punch everyone in Europe repeatedly. Again, UK has a little bit of different system. You're further from the Russians. You hardly use any of their stuff. You have the option of taking stuff from the North Sea first. You have closer access to LNG from the United States. So you're going to be able to watch Europe. And when you're not giggling, because that would be rude, you're hopefully going to learn a few things on, not what, on what not to do as you're adjusting your own energy plans. But all of that is going to be inflationary no matter who you are. We're losing potash fertilizer that used to come from Russian Belarus. We're losing phosphate fertilizer, which used to come from China. And we are losing nitrogen fertilizer, which is made from natural gas globally. So we know food prices have to go up. Again, I don't see the UK starving, but that contributes to inflation. Right. So for the average worker, uh, Tucker Carlson said this, and it, it basically makes sense. The average worker is going to be $3,400 poorer at the end of 2022 compared to the beginning due to massive inflation. Right. Here's an excerpt from The Right Stuff, essentially calling for the killing of all Jews and gays, episode 922 at the uh, two-minute mark and the 13-minute mark. The problem is we're not having a discussion about whether or not you should exist anymore. We need to reopen that debate. Like, there's no reason for you to exist. You're well, I would say the conditions should stop existing. Yeah. 
and and the condition stops existing by is. by we stop facilitating it. Like I, it's again like because again the, the thing with they, they're always gonna say you want to like gas all of us or something. It's I'm like, like okay with that. Uh, yeah, put I that on me. I'm, okay, I mean, <laughs> right? What what normal person is going to sign up for this kind of platform? I mean. Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker and the TRS crew, they've they've had some pretty sharp insights at times. They've been pretty funny at times, but uh, they've been captured by their audience because their audience wants to hear this kind of genocidal rhetoric. So the, the right stuff don't want to disappoint their audience, so they give them a frequent helping of genocidal rhetoric. Now, this doesn't mean that they'd actually carry it out if they had the capability Right, because everyone operates within a situation. So in Israel, you'll frequently hear thousands of people screaming death to the Arabs. But many of those people wouldn't carry that out unless they're in particularly extreme circumstances. Uh, plenty of Palestinians and Arabs scream and shout about death to the Jews. In certain circumstances, yeah, they want to carry that out. But in other circumstances, they wouldn't. So it's not like there's just this essential you who's either genocidal or anti-genocidal, right? If you love something, you're going to fight to protect it. In some circumstances, all of us can be absolutely heinous, all right? In, in some situations, we can, we can sign on with really nasty policies that in more peaceful times would, would look absolutely heinous. So, there's not an essential you, there's not an essential quality to being Jewish or Muslim or Christian or white nationalist or Nazi, right? The Nazis came to power. They didn't immediately start slaughtering people. They started facilitating Jews moving to Israel and taking much of their wealth, if not all of their wealth, with them. So they were actively assisting the rebirth and renewal of the Jewish state of Israel before World War II came along, and they could no longer engage in that. So some people will say genocidal things and they will never act that way. Other people will only say beautiful things and then turn genocidal. So there's not this direct correlation between things that people say and how they act. On the other hand, to speak the way that uh, Mike Enoch and company do on this show, it reveals that these are clearly self-destructive because they're going to probably be far more self-destructive to themselves and to their followers than they are to people outside of themselves. But they're clearly self-destructive and they're clearly antisocial. Right? To speak this way in America today, one of the freest, most prosperous nations that's ever existed, and to want to be invoking genocide against Jews and gays just shows that uh, this is not a good group. Right? This, is, this is not a good form of entertainment. This is not going to have a positive effect on people. It's not going to cause you know, everyone who listens to it to go out and be genocidal, obviously. But it could play a small difference in tipping people towards you know, more destructive tendencies. I'm, like, I'm sure. I'm sure but like, again, I don't care. Like, we can also, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired of to back off of accusations like that. But, like, what are you doing to white people? What are you doing to me? That's true. But, Just you are so incredibly self-destructive and antisocial that you, Mike Enoch, are the biggest cause of your own problems. For pretty much everyone associated with TRS, you are the biggest cause of your own problems. It's not the Jews, it's not the gays, it's not the, the white cucks, it's not the Republicans, it's not the Democrats. You are the problem. 
because you're not outright using the gas, I'm supposed to fucking shrink back from the accusation that I want to kill all my enemies? I want to kill all my enemies. Okay. One by one. I don't want to do them six minutes at a time. I want it to be personal, up close, and I want it to be an emotional experience. And it's entirely possible that uh, th this may be a very nice guy in certain circumstances. It's entirely possible that this is someone claiming that he wants to do things that he simply constitutionally is incapable of. So you can't just say, oh, someone said genocidal things, therefore they are genocidal in all situations. I mean, this is just antisocial, self-destructive acting out and also reveals someone who's gotten out of touch with reality and is not on a good path in life. I think that's fair to say. I want to watch your lights go out. Stick a fucking and fucking yeah, fly the fucking swastika flag all over TPUSA. Fucking pussies. Everyone who has a fucking problem with going hard needs to just shut the fuck up. Because what's going to happen to you 20 years from now instead of people are people are going to love this bit. And I'm happy about that, but like again, we'll look through like the the thing here. I'm a genocidal maniac. <laughs> You're lucky I don't have the means to do it. My point is this: the only reason I can't do genocide is because you fuckers won't back me no, up. I actually won't let you do it either. <laughs> I know you won't back me up for optics. It's that's not a bad look. It's not even it's bad not look optics. to who when they're all dead. <laughs> every faggot, every Jew. Okay, so Bill Burr talks on his comedy shows how it'd be better if uh, millions, billions of people died, right? So it's not unknown people doing comedy also simultaneously calling for you know, mass genocide and mass death. So you can phrase it a little more delicately and you can get away with it like Bill Burr does. Again, the problem is, though, I think that the discourse becomes this. This is the kind of discourse we engage in. Because there yeah, is we no should pussy put around. We should pussy put around monkeypox. Like, let's leave, like the now, is this much different from what they were doing in 2016? So I don't think they have gotten nastier. I mean, they were doing this stuff in 2016, and most of these guys at TRS are married with kids, so they're not they're not incels, right? They're not loners. They have a community. Generally speaking, they have spouses and they have children. And most of them work for a living. Don't do it. Don't be I, I, have I pussyfooted oh. around any No, of this? I'm just saying, like, that's what society wants to do. And said, oh, you know, well, avoid gathering. But it's like, don't not, be close. It seemed to be something that would make sense. If you think that people are born like this, we need to have, a, we need to have the conversation about whether or not you're allowed to exist. We need to have that conversation about a lot of different kinds of people. That's what all this stuff is a, like, a pretense to. Is like, are you saying we should debate whether we're not going to debate the existence? I'm like, obviously, let's have the debate. Let's debate different people's well, existences because there's a lot of people that shouldn't exist. Okay, so this could be done in a healthier way in that everybody should think about, am I making the world a better place? Is my group overall a blessing to America or is my group overall a curse to America? Right, that is worth talking about and and thinking about, not in the terms that they were using there on TRS, but we should all think about: Are we generally speaking a blessing to the people around us, or are we a curse? Is is my group a blessing, or is my group a curse? Right, holding ourselves, holding our group accountable, is a good thing. 
limited. We have a problem. We have limited solutions. You have to choose one. You know, actually propose a solution to these problems instead of just critiquing other people's solutions and not supplying any. You know, does Stephen Miller have a solution to overpopulation? No, he's just playing political football. So he says, replace religion with regime ideology. Uh, Stephen Miller is an incredibly effective person who has done really good work. So I appreciate that uh, Ken Brown is doing a series, Liars on the Right, number nine, Stephen Miller. That was kind of ballsy. So I appreciate the counterintuitive attempt that, that he's, he's making here. But uh, i got some compliments on my hair. What kind of hair product am I using? I wet my hands. I got some water and I wet my hands and I slicked my hair back just before the show. That's the product I'm using on my hair. This is a funny one. Um, because <laughs> there's a sense in which, like, the traditional role of religion is as a state ideology. That's how religion kind of formed. Well, I was just thinking the big difference between TRS now and four or five years ago, as I understand it, just these are the things I've heard, is that it used to be funny. So it doesn't seem to be so funny anymore. All right. And they don't seem to be putting as much effort in hand-in-hand hand with the state. This idea of separation of church and state is a very new idea, um, you know, coming from the 30 years war, the idea of sovereignty that, but even then with sovereign, the idea of sovereignty was that each priest, or it's not priest, each prince chooses the religion of his state. So if you live in Hamburg, you're the Prince of Hamburg, then you get to choose whether Hamburg is Catholic or Protestant. That's what sovereignty originally meant. Then, you know, enlightenment Freemasons and whatnot took that a step further and said, you know, any, any individual is a sovereign prince and any individual can choose their own religion, freedom of conscience. You know, problem with this, and, and while I think there is a degree of utility to that, I think also there has always been, and there will always be a state religion. It used to be Christianity. Um, it seems we're moving away from that now. I think it's good that the state is involved in religion. I think the, the state plays an integral role in religious life. And I think we, we should see that. Now, you may say you don't like the state religion. It should be different. Well, then you should become powerful and you should influence the state and like play the game. Don't hate the player. Uh, so, you know, he's, uh, Stephen Miller is a player hater is how I would describe him. Put uh, government between parents and children. This is just a specific example of something that all religions do. Christianity says, you know, uh, Christ says, you know, I've come to split up uh, moms and dads and children and parents. I've come to separate people on the basis of... Um, you know, godliness and, and whatnot, an ideology. So it's a very deeply Christian concept. Um, the uh, Bhagavad Gita is about how Arjuna has to fight against his grandfather in um, the battlefield of Kurukshetra. So, you know, this is an ancient religious concept that you can't... Okay, here's Strike and Mike on Viktor Orban's recent comments against race, mis race mixing. Yeah, and really, it was you sent me that tweet from that woman in Hungary who does, like, she's like a U.S. representative. She's like, she's like American wokeism representative in Hungary, basically. Like, she's, she's, like, doing that. She's got a project for humanity or some crap over there and trying to bring gay fucking race mixing to Hungary or whatever. And and she's saying, what she's saying is, of course, because she's tweeting English and talking to people and talking to, like, right-wingers. Yeah, the, the real West. rulers of the EU. Talking, yeah, talking to right-wingers in the West. Like, if you are on board with Orban, I just want you to know this is what you're on board with, where he says, like, oh, right. Hungary is not a mixed-race country, and we don't want to be a mixed-race country. And then he went on to say some other things about how the West is, is mixing everything together and Central Europe is right. trying to hold against this and all this stuff. And the critiques I saw of this were very interesting to me. Because uh, there was no idea in anybody's mind, we talked about this, which was they were like, first of all, they're like, Hungary, that's all right, you, you don't want to be mixed race, your country's named after Asian oh. step horsemen. But the funny thing is, and I didn't know this, Warren told me this yesterday, because he's Hungarian, that's not the name of Hungary and Hungarian, or in Magyar. It's literally the, the name of Hungary and Magyar is like land of Magyars. Well, I can't say the word, but it's... Oh, right. So if you had some kind of, you know, theoretical nomenclature dispute, then then the, the comments would either be, you know, just fine or they'd be awful. Uh, on the basis of uh, the nomenclature. Yeah, right. Okay. I think that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.